Open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 10. Zechariah chapter 10. It's good to be getting back to the book of Zechariah. And we have been off and on through this for quite a bit of time. And what we're seeing is that what God wanted the children of Israel to do, they had gone through 70 years of captivity. They had gone back to the land. They had begun building the walls in the temple, but they hadn't continued. And so the book of Zechariah is God, through the prophet Zechariah, challenging the people to finish the work. And in challenging them to finish the work, he prophesies to them about what is going to happen in Israel immediately for them, but also when the Messiah returns to establish his kingdom on the earth. And so what we find in the book of Zechariah are amazing prophecies. And this week we are going to be looking at some immediate prophecies for the nation of Israel at the time that Zechariah was writing, answering some of the problems that they had. But beginning next week, we get into Zechariah chapter 11, and it goes into just some amazing information, prophetic information about the future. So now look at Zechariah chapter 10. Let's read verses 1 through 6. Ask ye of me, I'm sorry, ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. For the idols have spoken vanity and the diviners have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain, therefore they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats, for the Lord of hosts hath visited his flock, the house of Judah, and hath made them as his goodly horse in the battle. Out of him came forth the corner, out of him the nail, out of him the battle bow, out of him every oppressor together. And they shall be as mighty men which tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle." And they shall fight because the Lord is with them, and the riders on the horses shall be confounded. And I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them. And they shall be as though I had not cast them off, for I am the Lord their God, and I will hear them. Lord, thank you so much for your word, the opportunity to study it. And Lord, there's so much in this text. Please help me as I uh, try to communicate it today in a way that will be helpful and truthful to the text. Lord, help us now as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, verse 1, there's a lot of the beginning of this. I want you to see some doctrinal confusion. In verse 1, ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. Now, if you know anyone who's been a part of the charismatic movement, they love to talk about the latter rain. And what they believe is beginning with the Azusa Street Revival in the early 1900s, that there was, this was the latter rain of the Holy Spirit, which was spoken of by Joel the prophet. And now old men are going to prophesy, young men shall dream dreams. And this is going to be the outpouring and the great expanse of miracles in the world. That's the latter rain that charismatics talk about. What is the passage actually talking about? Now, you might want to write this down. It's a deep understanding of the text. Here's what he's talking about. What do y'all... Go go ahead and say it. Rain. What's his name? Said precipitation. It's talking about rain. 
It's exactly what it's talking about. The latter rain would come in March and April, and the, the former rain would be in September and October. September and October, they would sow their crops, but they needed that rain to make the grain swell in the latter rain. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about rain. Keep your place here. Go to Leviticus chapter 26. God in his land, the Holy Land, has given the nation of Israel some rules. And rain, of course, is a blessing from God. Now, this, this, I might not should say this, but I feel like we had a little bit too much of God's blessing earlier in the year. You all know what I'm talking about. But look what the Bible says in verse 2. Well, let's just start in verse 1. And you'll see that this is a direct cross-reference to where we are in the book of Zechariah. So Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 1, You shall make no idols, nor graven image, neither rear you up a standing image, neither shall ye set up any image of stone in your land to bow down unto it, for I am the Lord your God. Now, how many of you notice that God does not want us to make images and bow down to those images? One of the things, uh, I was at a Coptic church in uh, Cairo, Egypt, a couple of weeks ago. And you would watch people come in and they would touch these idols and pray to them. They would kiss them and pray to these idols. That is in direct contradiction to what God says. Are you all with me on that? It's in direct contradiction to what the Bible says. Now, look at verse 2. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season. And the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing shall reach unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time. And ye shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land safely. And I will give peace in the land, and ye shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will rid evil beasts out of the land Neither shall the sword go through your land. So God makes the children of Israel some very specific prophecies. So I'm sorry, some very specific promises. If they will simply reject idolatry and keep the worship as God had instilled it, he would bless their land with rain. He would give them fruit. He would give them safety. He would keep others from coming in. He would even keep the wild beasts at bay. That's what God promised the nation of Israel. Now go back to Zechariah chapter 10. Now remember, they had gone off into captivity. The land had been judged. And now through the prophet Zechariah, he's telling them, ask God for the rain. Ask him for it. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright the clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. Look at verse 2. For the idols have spoken vanity. The idols had spoken vanity. So because of the idolatry of the children of Israel, he had stopped the rain. You give up your idolatry, I'll send the rain. That's what God's telling the children of Israel. It's not some strange working of the Holy Ghost. It's physical rain because you know that we cannot live without water. We can't do it. And, of course, that is the promise that God is making here. Um, 
In Joel 2.23, don't take the time to turn there, but he promises that the latter rain and the former rain are going to fall in the same month. It says, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain, in the first month. So when the Lord returns, that rain is all going to happen at the same time. It's an interesting thing that when you go to the Middle East, and again, I was there last week, on the water side there, if you go to the pyramids in Giza, it's, you see the city of, of Cairo. And Giza and Cairo is this huge metropolitan area, and that's all next to the Nile. So if you're facing this way, you're facing the city. If you turn around and face this way, all you see is desert. There's nothing there. Nothing. I'm talking about a mile from the city, there's nothing. Why? Because there's no water. You can't have life without water. You have to have it. It doesn't rain there. When you go to Israel, one of the things that you'll notice when you go to Israel is how green certain sections of it are. Because they have found ways to use irrigation to get water from the Jordan River and irrigate their crops. And so they have some ways to get water to the land. And yet, you move anywhere away from that irrigation and it's nothing but brown, desolate desert. Now, there are a few trees that grow. There are some things that will live out there, but it is not the land that flows with milk and honey that the, that the Hebrew spies went and visited, and they said that we can take it. It was a lush land that produced all kinds of crops until God stopped the rain. He stopped it. If you go there today, it is desert. If you go into Lebanon, you go up into the mountains, you have some arid areas, but the rest of it, it's desert. Syria, it's desert. And that is all a part of the land that God promised from the sea to the sea, from the river to the river. That's all the land that God promised Israel. And it's all supposed to be lush and full of green grass. Look at chapter 10 and verse 1. End of the verse. To everyone grass in the field. Grass in the field. Now, we don't have any trouble with that, do we? We have plenty of grass around here. You've got to mow it all the time. We don't have that problem. Why? Because we have regular rain. Over there in the land that is God's land, that he promised the nation of Israel, they don't have the rain. Why? Because of idolatry, because they walked away from the, uh, from the Lord. But one day, all of that is going to change, and that's what it is talking about. God is going to send rain again as he did in the past. Go to 1 Kings chapter 17. It is so fun when you see a passage like Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 1, and then we trace it down through the scriptures. I'm going to show you some stuff about the rain and the latter rain that God has shown us in the scriptures to where sometimes we'll read about the rain. And for us, that's such a normal thing. You know, and I understand that sometimes in July and August, it gets dry around here. But how many of you really ever worry that we're going to get rain again? No, it's going to rain. It's going to happen. They don't have that problem. Uh, I was, again, when I was in Cairo, I asked them, how often does it rain? A couple of times a year? It doesn't rain. It doesn't rain there. All right, so look at, Zechar, look at 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew 
nor rain these years, but according to my word. So Elijah comes along, the prophet of God, and he sees that Ahab, the king of Israel, has begun uh, making sacrifices to false gods, and he stops the rain. How long does he stop the rain for? Three and a half years. Now, if you know anything about Bible prophecy, that's a very significant period of time. He stops the rain for three and a half years. Now, he makes the rain start again. Look at 1 Kings chapter 18. And look at verse 1. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came unto Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab. And I will send rain upon the earth. I will send rain upon the earth. Now, here's what happens. During the tribulation period, all of a sudden, again, we have someone stopping the rain. Go to Revelation chapter 11. Now, a while back, we looked at these two witnesses when we looked at the two candlesticks that stand in the temple there in Zechariah. But look at uh, Revelation chapter 11, these two witnesses. Verse 1, Revelation 11 and verse 1, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So again, we know that during the tribulation period that the temple will be rebuilt in Israel. When I was there a few years ago, I went to the Temple Institute, and I saw the actual temple implements that have been created, they're ready to begin that worship again. As soon as those walls go up, they have everything ready. They have the singers prepared. They have the instruments prepared. They have the the articles prepared for the temple. It's all there. And then look at what it says in verse 2. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand, two hundred, and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Now, how long is that? That's three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Man, I think that would be awesome. To have that ability, to somebody's giving you grief, to have fire come out of your mouth, and boom, they're done. Man, deacons' meetings would be so smooth if I was able to do that. Now look at verse 6. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. What are the days of their prophecy? Three and a half years. They have the ability to stop the rain for three and a half years. Who was it that stopped the rain for three and a half years in 1 Kings? Elijah. Who did Jesus Christ meet with on the Mount of Transfiguration? Talking about the time that he would come. Moses and Elijah. It's really interesting. So, these have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And they do that for three and a half years. So in the tribulation period, Elijah appears and stops the rain just as he had done. And then he causes the deluge of Job 2.23, just as he did in 1 Kings 18. Now you say, Pastor, why do you think that it's Elijah that's doing this with the rain? We'll look at James chapter 5. 
And again, this is how we know that these rains deal with the second coming of Christ. So look at James chapter 5 and verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Now, this is how I know that this passage is dealing with the coming of the Lord. Because it says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Then look at the information that he gives. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth. Now, the precious fruit of the earth, we know that prophetically the precious, the precious fruit of the earth is us. He's going to rapture us. We are, we are his, his, remember, we are his husbandry. We are his building. That's what the Apostle Paul said. So when Jesus Christ returns in the clouds and he takes us out in the rapture, he is reaping what he has sown from the world. That's a really cool picture. He loves us. We are his precious fruit. But for the husbandman of the earth, the precious fruit is the fruit of the earth. They want their crops to be able to grow again. Now, again, so let's, let's look at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now, he's talking about the coming of the Lord and the early and latter rain. But it's so interesting. Look at who shows up later in the chapter. Look at verse 17. Elias, that's Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. Now, what God is telling us here is he is going to use Elijah just as he did in the past. He's going to do it in the future to stop the rain. And then when God sends that deluge back to the earth, it's going to change the world. Can I show you how much God's going to change the world? This is such an interesting thing. Look with me at Luke chapter 17. When he sends the water again, Luke 17, how much water is he going to send? Luke 17, and look at verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. As it was in the days of Noah... Now, did any water come in the days of Noah? It changed the world. When Jesus Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation period, and it's been too long, I need to, uh, I need to preach the text, the message, why the tribulation, and show you what actually happens in the world during the tribulation period. But the world is basically destroyed during those seven years of tribulation. It's full of pestilence. It's full of disease. There's death everywhere. The, the seas have been turned to blood. All the green grass is destroyed. The world is basically destroyed. And then when Jesus Christ returns, he steps foot on the Mount of Olives. It's split in two. Jerusalem is raised up to the, height, to the highest of the mountains. The other mountains are brought low. And the entire world is changed. How is the world changed? Through a flood. Now... The people are not destroyed in the flood as they were in that, but the land is completely changed so that there's green grass everywhere in the Holy Land, so that the crops grow and people come to that land to be blessed. 
Everything changes. So let's go back to Zechariah chapter 10. And I could show you a ton of other verses. Well, you know, just for the fun of it, go to Psalm 68. I'll just take you to one more text that shows what happens with the rain when the Lord returns. Look at verse 8. Psalm 68 and verse 8. The earth shook. The heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. O God, didst send a plentiful rain whereby thou didst confirm thy inheritance when it was weary. So when Jesus Christ returns and everything is shaken, the mountains are shaken, everything is moved. Then he sends a plentiful rain that cleanses everything. So not only do you see this rain that accompanies it, what had stopped the rain in the first place? Well, it was a demonic conjuring. Go back to Zechariah chapter 10 and look at verse 2. Now, everybody get plugged in here. I'm going to show you some really interesting stuff from this that might sound arcane, but then I'm going to bring it forward to today's time. So verse 2, for the idols have spoken vanity, and the diviners have seen a lie. They've told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. Now, remember what happened. The Babylonian kings were, were full of the occult. The occult was very strong in this time. And the diviners, what is a diviner? A diviner is someone who tells the future. When you see the name John the Divine, why is he called John the Divine? Because he told the future. A diviner is one who tells the future. And the way that they told the future was by examining animal guts or examining the shape of the liver. Look at Ezekiel chapter 21. Of course, keep Zechariah. But look at Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 21. Ezekiel 21, 21. For the king of Babylon stood at the parting of the way, at the head of the two waves, the two ways to use divination. He made his arrows bright. He consulted with images. He looked in the liver. How about that? They would look at the shape of the liver to determine the future. Now, how many of you think that's a little weird? It's the occult. And it's interesting how often blood is accompanying the occult and just all kinds of disgusting practices. So all these things that were forbidden even to touch for the children of Israel, these are things that they would use in worship for the Babylonians. And because so many of the children of Israel had followed these practices, God had judged Israel. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. I want you to see what God had said about these practices. Deuteronomy 18, look at verse 10. Well, let's look at verse 9 for the context. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 9. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations 
of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter pass through the fire. Now remember, this was sacrifices to Baal, sacrifices to Molech, people sacrificing their children. Then it says, uh, or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. So all of these things, somebody, an observer of times, that's someone that's trying to look at uh, horoscopes and tell the future. An enchanter, that's someone casting spells or a witch or a charmer or a consulter with familiar spirits. That's a channeler or a wizard or a necromancer. Again, someone talking with the dead. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. For these nations which thou shalt possess, hearkened unto observers of times and unto diviners. But as for thee, the Lord thy God hath not suffered thee to do so. Now, here's something that's really important for us to understand. When we read those passages about what's going on in those times, we think that's, that's weird and, and it was a false religion, but it didn't really happen. No, this demonic activity, they really were talking with people that were supposedly dead. They really were able to tell future things that would happen. Do you remember when uh, Pharaoh's magicians were able to do many of the same miracles that, that Moses was able to do? This is very, very real demonic oppression, demonic activity, and God says, do not do that. If you're going to be in the land, do not do this. But they began following those practices. And so God not only had them go off into captivity, he stopped the rain from falling. And let me tell you, the rain still doesn't fall. The rain still doesn't fall in that area. And you say, Pastor, all of that is very interesting, but what does that have to do with us? I misspoke a couple of weeks ago. I was talking about Marianne Williamson. Did any of you see Marianne Williamson on the uh, debates, on the Democratic debates? How many of you saw that? How many of you saw how weird she was. And I said she was the one who did the Jesus calling. She's not. That was Sarah Young. She's the one who teaches the Course of Miracles for Oprah Winfrey. So a Course in Miracles. And I want to talk to you about this. A Course in Miracles is something that has taken over much of the world because of people like Oprah Winfrey and people like Robert Schuller. Because of people like Robert Schuller from the Crystal Cathedral, he, you know, people thought that he was an evangelical. He was not. He would teach that course in miracles on his campus at the church. And people like Rick and Kay Warren would go there. People like Lee Strobel would go there. And it started infecting. You find this new age demonic language in books like The Purpose Driven Life. It's information that came from A Course in Miracles. Sarah Young was influenced by a book called God Calling. God Calling. In the book God Calling, the author heard from a spirit guide that told the author what to write. Sarah Young, while she was at Labrie, not the Labrie in Switzerland, but a Labrie in, in France, she was out and all of a sudden Jesus started talking to her. And this spirit named Jesus started giving her information. And she wrote down these messages from this spirit called Jesus that is now in this book called Jesus Calling. That is channeling. That is not biblical revelation. It's channeling. 
And what Sarah Young wants people to go into is something called contemplative prayer, where you sit and you empty your mind of everything and allow God, God to fill it. God never tells you to empty your mind. He tells you to fill your mind with Scripture. He tells you to make sure... It, remember, spiritual warfare is a battle of the mind. And you exercise your mind to godliness. It's always think. It's always consider. It's always renew your mind. Never do you empty your mind. So I want you to see some things from A Course in Miracles. And I want you to understand just how demonic Oprah Winfrey is. And, and I know, we live in a time where preacher stands up and says... Oprah Winfrey is demonic. Next thing he's going to say is Teletubbies are gay. Right? That's the, that's the, how many of you know what I'm talking about with that? Do you remember all that? What happens is they're so crazy, when you describe them, you sound crazy. So I'm going to show you right now Oprah Winfrey's religion. This religion of A Course in Miracles that is still taught on Oprah Winfrey's Sirius XM radio channel every day. This is what they teach. This is Marianne Williamson did not invent A Course in Miracles. She wrote books about it, and she's the one who introduced Oprah Winfrey to it. Let me tell you a little bit about this. Lesson 29 asks you to go through your day affirming that God is in everything I see. Is God in everything you see? No. No. Um, lesson 61 tells each person to repeat the affirmation, I am the light of the world. Who's the light of the world? Jesus. Jesus. Lesson 70 teaches the student to believe my salvation comes from me. My salvation comes from me. Helen Schuchman channeled A Course in Miracles. One day Schuchman heard an inner voice stating, this is A Course in Miracle. Please take notes. And so for seven years, she diligently took spiritual dictation from this inner voice that described himself as Jesus. Go to 1 John chapter 4. I told you I would show this necromancy, this uh, divination, this idolatry, this blasphemy that God is speaking about in Zechariah chapter 10. It takes place today. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come. And even now already is it in the world. Year of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, let's look at this. So, A Course in Miracles was published in 1975 by the Foundation for Inner Peace. And it was studied by New Age people. So, let me give you some quotes from the Jesus in A Course in Miracles. Remember, this is dictation that this woman wrote down from this spirit called Jesus. Quote, there is no sin. It has no consequence. How many of you think Satan wants the world to think that? How about this? A slain Christ has no meaning. A slain Christ has no meaning. 
Number three, the journey to the cross should be the last useless journey. Number four, do not make the pathetic error of clinging to the old rugged cross. Number five, the name of Jesus Christ as such is but a symbol. It is a symbol that is safely used as a replacement for the many names of all the gods to which you pray. Is that blasphemy? How about this? God is in everything I see. Number seven, the recognition of God is the recognition of yourself. Number eight, the oneness of the creator and the creation is your wholeness, your sanity, and your limitless power. Number nine, the atonement is the final lesson. He, man, need learn, for it teaches him that never having sinned, he has no need of salvation. So that's why Robert Schuller said the most harmful thing you can do to a person's self-image is to make them aware of their lost and sinful condition. It's heresy, but not only is it heresy, it's demonic heresy channeled from a demon written down and taught by people like Marianne Williamson and Oprah Winfrey. And then that same kind of teaching, which comes through the book God Calling, makes its way into the book Jesus Calling, which is in every Christian bookstore and in many churches around the world, teaching simply demonic, satanic information about a Christ that is not the Christ of the Bible. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 3, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. The Bible is very clear. That's exactly what's going on today. The Bible says for in verse 13, for such are false, false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. The Bible tells us that even in the church, Jesus Christ gives the parable of, of the church growing like a mustard seed, from a mustard seed into a great tree, and then the, the birds come and lodge in their branches. Satan is the bird. And what God is doing is he's pointing out to us that Satan is going to try and worm his way into the church, so there's going to be error, false teaching, a false Christ, this strange self-esteem gospel. Can I tell you something? The Bible never has anything good to say about me. That's why I need Jesus. Jesus is perfect. Jesus Christ is sinless. I am altogether sinful. Jesus Christ in his grace and mercy loved the unlovable. He gave up his riches so that I could be rich. Jesus Christ died on the cross, his righteous and sinless blood, paying for my sin, which is very real. The Bible is not a self-esteem book. 
The Bible is a God is worthy book so that we do not worship ourselves. We worship him. We have nothing to boast in save the cross of Jesus Christ. It is not empty. It's not meaningless. It's not pointless. It's the hope of eternal life. The cross of Christ and the empty tomb because Jesus Christ is not me. Jesus Christ is the sinless Son of God. And he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We have a time where the occult is all around us. And because we think that the occult is something like the exorcist, you know, and head spinning around and projectile vomiting, that's our image of demonism. No, demonism is Oprah Winfrey. Demonism is Robert Schuller. He's dead and his church is a Catholic church now. These things that happen, they happen for a reason. Satan hates the truth. He hates the gospel. God told Israel, stay away from this stuff. God tells the church, stay away from this stuff. We must have discernment if we want the blessing of God on Grace Baptist Church. Amen? We are so careful with the literature that we bring in here. We're so careful with the preaching and teaching that we bring in here. Because we don't worship any man. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ through his word. That is what the Bible commands us to do. You know, I mentioned next week we were going to... Head, but my time is... Head into chapter 11, but my time is done today. There's so many more things that we could talk about. Just, let's just finish up with Zechariah chapter 10. I told Laura this morning I didn't know how the time would be for my message today. I have way too much information for one message. But it would be a bummer to end right there. So verse 2, For the idols have spoken vanity, the diviners have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain, therefore they went their way as a flock, and they were troubled because there was no shepherd Now, the shepherds, I don't have time to trace this down, but this is talking about the kings. My anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats. And the goats are like that scapegoat or a bad leader. For the Lord of hosts hath visited his flock in the house of Judah and hath made them as his goodly horse in battle. Pretty soon, God's going to return and Israel's going to be strong again. So what's the answer to all this occult activity? Verse 4, out of him. Who's that? Out of him. Judah. The house of Judah, out of Judah came forth the corner. Who's the corner? Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Out of him came the nail. What's the nail? That's, the, that's that, that, that chief nail holding the tabernacle together. And the Bible says that's Jesus Christ. Out of him came the battle bow, Jesus Christ. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah that Jesus Christ is that battle bow. So what's the answer to the occult? The Messiah for Israel Jesus Christ, our Savior for us. Just as today, what's the answer to those who get mixed up in the occult? What's the answer? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ, the one true God. He is the answer to all of those challenges as the Messiah to Israel and as our Lord and Savior today. Jesus Christ is the answer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. And it's amazing how much information is packed into just a few verses that when we just read past them, it seems like there's no information there.